I'm Brian Fabian Crane and I'm here with Sebastian Couture. We just got back from Amsterdam where we attended Bitcoin 2014 conference, which took place from May 15th to 17th. It was the second conference organized by the Bitcoin Foundation and over 1,000 people gathered for three days of talks and conversations. We had the opportunity to interview many speakers and attendees and talk about their projects and perspectives. We will release those episodes over the coming weeks. So to kick off our series of interviews, we sat down with John Matonis, Executive Director and Board Member of the Bitcoin Foundation. He spoke to us about the growth of the Bitcoin ecosystem and the role of the Foundation moving forward. We also spoke to Mark Barish, CMO of Jumio, specializing in ID verification. Also, Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase. Then, Radislav Albrecht, founder of Bitbond, a peer-to-peer lending platform for Bitcoin. We end this one with Jeff Gallus. He's chairman of the board of the German Bitcoin Foundation, and he talked to us about the Bundesverband Bitcoin signing on as a Bitcoin Foundation affiliate. My name is John Matonis. I'm the executive director uh, and board member of Bitcoin Foundation. So um, tell us about this conference. It's our second annual conference. Our first one was in San Jose. And uh, we selected uh, Amsterdam for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, we wanted to do a conference outside of the U.S. to be very inclusive. Uh, Bitcoin is a lot more than just a USA technology. Uh, it's, it's a global currency, so we wanted to start doing the conferences outside of the U.S. And if you look at a Bitcoin Foundation membership base, we are over 50% non-U.S. membership base. Uh, so that's another reason that we wanted to be in uh, in, in uh, the EU um, and outside of the U.S. Um, Netherlands, though, specifically, is, as I mentioned in the opening remarks today, they are number six uh, in global active Bitcoin nodes, which is very great because they are not number six in population. So a <laughs> uh, very active community in the Netherlands. So if you compare uh, last year to this year, I mean, you've talked a bit about the influx of new businesses. What else do you think has changed that's really uh, maybe surprised you? Well, uh, yeah, and then the, the 12 months have just you know flown by since the last conference. Um, uh, a lot of things have changed, but the thing that's most noticeable is the amount of uh, number of professional companies that are now starting to get involved in Bitcoin. And I'm not just talking about the ones that have venture capital funding. But um, the, just the professionalism of the teams, they can get funding from many places. Um, uh, larger companies even are looking at integrating Bitcoin offerings into their current product portfolios. So the amount of uh, independent development that we seen, have seen is just booming uh, in, uh, you know, uh, across the world. And we didn't see that last year. We only saw little pockets. And I guess if you look at one year ahead, what are your uh, most... What do you think is going to be the most important trend? Uh, well, you know, one year ahead for, for Bitcoin, I think we'll, we'll start to see, uh, you know, real permanent applications starting to be deployed in the, in the developing world. Like, uh, uh, just as we showed on the video this morning, I mean, there's real world uses that can show, you know, real world benefits today. They don't have to wait for, uh, you know, legislative decree or, or, or regulators to catch up. Um, people can transfer money now to places like Uganda, and the money can be used, and it, it can solve problems today. Now, that, that's for Bitcoin, uh, you know, in, in a year. Um, for the foundation, 
um, what you'll see is we'll, we'll start to uh, broaden out more globally. So we, we intend to play a big role in, in the EU. Uh, we opened an international office in, in London. Um, we're signing on uh, affiliates, which are uh, local partners uh, that represent the Bitcoin Foundation in their country. Yesterday, we signed uh, Germany and Netherlands as affiliate partners, so they have their own nonprofits in those countries, and they become uh, they become our eyes and ears in, in those countries. Uh, so we're we're very encouraged by that. I think you'll see uh, probably ten or twenty more of those. How many the are there year. right now? Right now, there's a total of five. It's Canada, Australia, Mexico, and then, as I mentioned, Netherlands and Germany. Uh, we also intend to play a, a big role in Asia uh, as well. Um, our next conference in next year, in 2015, will take place in Asia, and we're not sure yet if it's Singapore or Hong Kong. So is this, is this the vision to kind of uh, branch out the uh, Bitcoin Foundation and kind of sign on affiliates in different countries? Or, um, yeah, I mean, is that, is that the vision? That, that is the vision, and it's also the major thrust for, for 2014. Is okay. it, 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 we... we Looked at a lot of different ways to um, uh, to become more relevant globally, and this is a methodology that we came up with that uh, is is the most decentralized, I think, because we allow these nonprofits that are local to re- to retain their own governance structure. Um, they can form their own boards. They can use their own websites. I mean, we're not trying to come in there and build a subsidiary in a country. We would rather. Uh, partner with somebody who's already existing in the country. And what is the advantage for those partners? Like, for instance, in France, we have the French Bitcoin Association, or the French Bitcoin Foundation. Um, what is the advantage for uh, a foundation to join the Bitcoin Foundation? Uh, yes, we're actually trying to uh, partner with the French ones right You've now. You've been in touch with um, <laughs> Yes, I know Phil very well. Um, so the, the the reasons are, I mean, there are several, but we've structured it in a way where it's a turnkey solution. So the people who are running the, the local board in France, for instance, they don't have to quit their regular jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, they can. We, we take on the overhead of, of running the foundation in terms of um, the uh, membership portal and some of the logistics. They, they can keep their full-time jobs, and they gain credibility by partnering with the Bitcoin Foundation um, in terms of gaining new members. So we do revenue sharing back to them where we will split the revenue on the new membership um, and they get to keep 100% of any of the, the local donations. So we believe, and we've demonstrated this with the other affiliates, that um, after uh, partnering with the Bitcoin Foundation, they tend to get more memberships. They, they have more credibility with, the, um, with, with their own local regulators if they're going and doing an educational presentation, for instance. Um, they also get more media contact because... We cannot answer all the queries ourselves. So queries come in from, from France, for instance. We will refer that to the, the French affiliate. Um, so it solves a lot of problems, and it's it, it's a true partnership. It's only a two-year agreement. So if, if either party decides that it's not working out, then we're, we're free to go our own way. But um, so far, it's been very successful. Cool. And for the foundation, the, is the main focus now at this point regulation, or where would you put the the most important areas of your work? Well, we, we really cover three important areas, and the, the, the number one is the, uh, the, the core development work around the Bitcoin core protocol. And uh, our chief scientist is Gavin, Gavin Andreessen. 
Um, and we also provide compensation for some of the other core developers. So developer compensation is what we set out to do in the beginning. Would you like to extend that in the future? Uh, we, we are extending that in the future, but we don't really have a goal of compensating every developer. We would like uh, the, the Bitcoin companies themselves to hire some of the core developers and you know pay them to work full-time on the protocol. Um, their BitPay has already done this, uh, and several other Bitcoin companies are considering doing the same thing. Now, when it comes to the developer comp compensation for the ones that work at the foundation, we uh, we set it up so that we can ensure uh, transparency of compensation. So, in other words, they uh, they cannot be compensated in in another way in secret. So, other governments maybe can't government bodies can't be paying them, so they won't be influenced. That was very important from the beginning to set up transparency of compensation for the developers. And you don't think that uh, kind of independence of developers would be compromised if their salary is paid by a Bitcoin company? Uh, well, um, it's uh, they're, it's not compromised when they're at the foundation because we have a, a very strong, you know, a very strong dividing line and a Chinese wall, if you will, between the developers and the board of directors. So. They, they, they still have the same amount of autonomy that they would, uh, you know, Gavin and Vladimir, for instance. Now, on the on the corporate side, if a, if a corporate takes on the role of, uh, of bringing a developer on board, then uh, certainly they're going to have their biases, but that will be recognized when the contributor is, you know, working in the open source environment. Now, this is no different than the Linux model, where companies would sponsor people yeah. to work on Linux. Everybody knows in the community where they're coming from and their priorities and how they work up, uh, uh, you know, the GitHub priority list in, in, in open source uh, is going to be, um, you know, moderated by the peer community. They're not going to let somebody who, who has an obvious uh, agenda, they're not going to let him push that to the top. It's going to be, it's still going to be community driven. It's really just a matter uh, of, of who's paying them. And, you know, they may be able to do more because they're being paid, but it, it's not going to make it through if it doesn't pass with the rest of the community. So I've seen uh, quite a few of your articles, you know, where you often talk about kind of economic issues related to Bitcoin as well. And uh, one thing I've been thinking about a lot and wondering about, and I'm really curious on your opinion on that, is, uh, you know, to what extent uh, Bitcoin is scarce or it, it will be digitally scarce given that you have all those other currencies that can basically take on the same function. You're talking about the altcoins? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's a good question. And uh, we, we've spent a lot of, a lot of time uh, you know, discussing this and thinking about this. Bitcoin is the leader right now, as you know, um, and it has the... Uh, you know, it, it has the strongest network overall because of the, you know, the increasing trend of the hash rate. So uh, not only does it have a lead in market cap, but that lead is mirrored in the strength of the overall network. Um, some of the other cryptocurrencies, and there's over 300 of them, there's over 300 different ones um, right now, um, they don't have the same strength of the network. They, 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 they would uh, eventually run into difficulties uh, related to security if they ever did achieve, you know, any high value or, or usage rate. Um, and because of that, the, the, the lead, the leaders tend to be the ones who end up, uh, you know, the initial leaders uh, tend to be the ones who end up with, um, with, with the advantage because it's a, it's definitely first mover advantage, but the security of the blockchain 
um, is very helpful to the leader and it, and it kind of keeps the other ones at bay. Now, the other comment I'll make on that is, is that the world, um, really can't handle so many different value standards. Think of, uh, think of, uh, crypto coins and altcoins as, uh, as a measurement of value. Just like, um, the temperature is a measurement, uh, the way you measure temperature is also a measurement. And we have, uh, we have Celsius, we have Fahrenheit. Uh, our minds can think of, you know, my mind thinks in Fahrenheit, your mind thinks in Celsius. Then there's also Kelvin, which is another measurement system for temperature. If we're measuring value and our mind gets used to, uh, Bitcoin and other, maybe Litecoin or another coin, uh, of course, there may be two, three, or four, but you're not going to end up in a world where there's um, a hundred because humans don't work that way. The, the, they tend to gyrate to one standard, and a standard emerges, um, or in the case of temperature, you know, a few multiple standards. So there's room for one or a few. Now, the reason that you don't see that today with the national currencies is because the national currencies, like these flags out here, are, are all still drawn in artificial boundaries. So these are, they're, they're artificial to begin with. So that's why they've maintained their privilege within those artificial boundaries of being the value standard for that one area. If those boundaries went away, you would see the, the, you would see the citizens of the world just naturally gyrate towards, uh, only a few, uh, measurements of value as they did with gold. Yeah, I think that will be uh, really fascinating to see how that plays out. I mean, I certainly agree, right? Like security is is a network effect. You yep. have that there. And usability, I agree, there's one too. I think it will be interesting to see how strong they are and what other incentives there are that yeah. maybe go the other way. Exactly. So. No, the network effect. You, you mentioned it. You know, you're spot on with that. I just had one last question. Um, going back to the foundation, can you talk to us about the, uh, the new board members? Uh, yeah, the new board members are uh, Bobby Lee from BTC China and then Brock Pierce from GoCoin. Um, they were elected uh, by the industry members, and both of them, uh, both of those two spots were replacing the two vacancies that we had from uh, Charlie Schramm and Mark Carpales. The uh, Their terms begin on June 1st, and I think they will be two-and-a-half-year terms. Cool. Well, I, we hope. Let's hope that uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the foundation as well. So let's hope that uh, kind of going forward, some of those will be alleviated. I think that this this conference and the turnout we're seeing at this conference, uh, you know, re- really demonstrates that the, the 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 you know the foundation is strong. The foundation is global, and uh, we are also the leaders in the conference space as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Good. Thanks, you guys. I'm Mark Barish. I'm CMO at, at Jumio. And uh, what I'm spending a lot of time on these days is figuring out how to bring our product to the Bitcoin industry because we think it's really vital to the to the growth of, of the industry. And can you uh, tell people who don't know about Jumio what, what the product is? Sure. Well, Jumio um, is a expert in computer vision technology. So that means that we utilize device cameras in order to um, validate credentials and extract the information from them and use them in transactions. Credentials in our world include all sorts of ID credentials and payment credentials, like credit cards and things like that. 
And our um, secret sauce is that we're fully embedded inside of our clients' mobile apps or websites as just a seamless process that they put the customer through wherever it makes sense in, in, in their business process. And that means that consumers uh, are guided through a simple process and they don't need to interact with any external uh, entity. So in particular, right, if, I mean, you talked earlier about Airbnb, you know, so right. if you need to authenticate who the people are, that, so you can do that in a simple a, way. That's the most common use case is when opening an account at Airbnb or at a bank or money transfer, uh, any one of those entities typically says, hey, show me your ID. And in the wor- real world, we know how to do that. But we're, what's the corollary in the connected device world? How do you actually show an ID? So that's where we step in. And with our computer vision technology, we're able to capture the image, uh, validate that it's real, and use the information in the transaction. It seems like kind of an obvious way to go if that would be that you have some sort of uh, face match or matching of the ID picture with the mm-hmm. uh, and, and we do. Are, and, are you doing and, that? And we call it face match. <laughs> That's exactly the brand name. Um, so that is an, an additional feature on, on our product um, where... After the the document, that's hilarious because I was writing down the questions before, and uh-huh. I was like, <laughs> "Like, will you use face match?" But I don't think I saw that word on your no. website. So well, it, it's, it's an uh, obvious. It's uh, a, there you go. Name. and that that uh, helps um, uh, calculate the confidence that the individual who's holding up the ID is the same individual who's featured in the photo on that. Yeah, ID. exactly. It's that's a tricky piece of technology, and uh, only because uh, people change and. It's or you can fake photos. it. Well, anything is fakeable, but um, the problem that it was set to solve is, is theft. Because um, if someone steals a bona fide ID, yeah. and we only look at the ID, then we can say that's a bona fide ID, but we don't know that it was stolen five yeah. minutes ago. But if, if a client of ours wants to be sure, then they'll say, hold your face up to your camera, and then if it's not similar enough, then we'll say... Could you spoof a face... From the picture it, of the ID? It would be pretty difficult. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, uh, we don't, um, uh, there's no 100% certainty yeah. matching and be just, obviously, we couldn't tell the difference between identical twins, for example. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so there are limitations. Yeah. But the way businesses look at this is just risk mitigation. They do many, many different things to lower yeah. risk in their business. None of them are perfect. In aggregate, they drive fraud down to levels yeah. they can live with. And this is just one of those, uh, the, those, those things they use. So, are, is it used in uh, the Robocoin? Because they do, they're doing something like that, you know. The um, Robocoin Bitcoin ATMs. Um, we have some Bitcoin ATM clients. I think the biggest one is um, um, BitAccess. Okay, yeah. And they're a client and, and a user of this technology, and I think more are coming on board. Okay, yeah. Uh, we've been existing, I mean, we were four years old. We're old. We're, we're yeah. four years old. <laughs> so uh, we've only really started focusing on the Bitcoin industry in the last maybe four five months when the Bitcoin industry came to us and we noticed that we had all these uh, young companies, exchanges and wallets and mining companies and things like that uh, needing this solution. And once we recognized that there was this new market and this new need, we created um, uh, a more specialized approach for the industry. So is it a significant part of Jumio's business now? Um, Not yet. Uh, you expect not, it will be. I expect it will. Yes, yeah. we're big believers and in, uh, in this, and um, we know there's hundreds of players in the space, and there's room for many, and we know that every single one of them should be doing some kind of KYC. 
they yeah. should be doing. We'd like them to be doing it the way we think is best. But no matter who or how, they still need to do it. So we see it as a big growth market. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in a talk before or yesterday uh, this Bison network. Yes, Bison. That's a Bison is a. Uh, a buffalo, if you're yeah. familiar with that. <laughs> animal of the American West. So that stands for the Bitcoin Identity Security Open Network. And it's something that we formed in late March and launched with a lot of uh, uh, acclaim uh, with our initial set of companies, which was eight Bitcoin companies. And what this network is all about is uh, to create a standard for the Bitcoin industry for how to do KYC, mm-hmm. uh, number one. Uh, number two, to to really stand out to customers, regulators, and criminals that this is a company that takes KYC seriously is using a state-of-the-art tool. Yeah, That's very important for all audiences because consumers are concerned, regulators, and you want criminals to go somewhere else. You don't want them to do business on yours with your company. But then of greater interest is the, the share of fraud trend information because we're able to look at fraud trends across all the companies in the Bitcoin network and then uh, anonymizing the data, let each company know where they stand against others. So they okay. can assess yeah. kind of uh, their own fraud profile. And the last piece is rolling out this summer, which is the actual um, user network. And this is something that allows a customer to be validated once with their initial Bitcoin relationship. In other words, let's say they go to um, uh, CoinRunner who's a client, and they open up their first account at CoinRunner, they'll scan their ID and be validated, and their information will be captured. Next time, they go to another Bitcoin company in the network. Before they do anything, we'll recognize that they're on that other company's app or site, and we will be able to pass along the fact that they're already validated and send the customer's information into the form. Okay. So hyper convenient, and that drives completion rates sky high. But you're going to have a centralized database of which will be helped by Jumio, I presume. Right? That's correct, with customers opting in, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But absolutely, we see ourselves as that independent middle party, third party that can with customer's permission, hold that data and then utilize it across yeah. our network of companies. That's going to be a, a, contro- a very controversial service in the Bitcoin world, no? Well, I think so. But, you know, as we talked about before, it's sort of, what does the industry really want here? Does it, does it uh, want a large audience and move up in the world of financial currencies and be a player? And in order to do so, it has to just attract masses of people, which means yeah. simpler product, more standardized, uh, working within regulations. And that's where we fit. We think the industry is going there because there's such a need for more efficient transfer of money. It's ridiculous what it's like to wire money or to do Forex. Very expensive and slow. So we see a huge need for efficient money transfer. But in order for it to become ubiquitous, I think that some of the earlier roots that formed uh, Bitcoin will, will evolve. Otherwise, it's going to probably stay a niche product that only appeals to a certain um, uh, class of customer who's different from the mass market. Yeah. Um. You know, the analogies have been made to, uh, and I, I think I mentioned it, to Internet 1993, pre-browser Internet, 
a little before uh, your time, perhaps, but can you imagine you couldn't, you, you could get online. There was an online world, but you couldn't get online oh, unless yeah. you were a scientist, unless you were a coder, and then you got into this dark, weird place where people interacted computer to computer. It, it, it tracked sort of a, attracted a, a highly scientific and uh, sort of fringe element. And then it got popularized with a way to display information in the initial browser. And once the initial browser was made, all of a sudden regular people could start interacting with it. And that's when the industry started to take off because it had been around for a decade prior. So it's that sort of maturation, I think, that we're going to see in the Bitcoin world as well. Do you think we will see that in the future that merchants, for example, require that thing when you pay with Bitcoin? Um, no. I, I don't think uh, the merchants are going to need it uh, because uh, the merchants will be, whoever their Bitcoin processor is, will be carrying the risk. And, yeah. and with Bitcoin, unless something were to change, there is no chargeback or return. So, in fact, it would probably be the safest transactions for a merchant. Um, the only reason a merchant would do it is if they wanted an additional validation on something very uh, expensive. Let's say you're selling $10,000 watches or rings or something yeah. where even today, just to make sure it's not a bad credit card transaction, sometimes ID is checked. Yeah. yeah. And I could see that happening also. Or if it's above a certain amount and yes. there are... Yeah. Even with cash transaction, I think sometimes you have to... Absolutely. Yes. All, all about risk mitigation. So, um, where do you kind of see, well, let's talk about Bitcoin a bit. So where do you, where do you see Bitcoin in three years? Um, I see it being more ubiquitous. <laughs> I think, I think, um, uh, I don't think my mom will have a Bitcoin account. She will or not? Will no. not. But I think that my friends who are not in tech yeah. will. Yeah. You know, whether the doctor here or the, you know, designer there. I think, I think that they will, uh, start to see this. But I believe, my own personal belief is that it's not going to take off so much on regular purchases. It's going to take off initially on, on foreign exchange, on sending money country to country. Yeah. Because that's the biggest pain point today. Um, huge dollars are sent, but, but not necessarily, um, uh, the largest number of consumers do it, right? I mean, not every consumer wires money to yeah. Japan every week. It's sort of a more of a specialized, but I believe that's where it adds the most value today. And, you know, you need a beachhead. You need to have one use case that's really popular. I think it's going to be around Forex. So three years out, I would see this being a big part of how people buy things uh, and pass money uh, between countries. That is very difficult to do today. What, what do you think the biggest threat is to Bitcoin? Um, I think it's uh, <laughs> self self inflicted wounds. Self inflicted wounds. I think it's the biggest problem. Um, I mean, we saw uh, in the last six months some very um, uh, cataclysmic events in yeah. the industry and how that drove Bitcoin prices down. And it didn't dampen investor uh, excitement because investors take a long view, but it scared away many, many potential consumers. Well, I mean, if you look at the Bitcoin price, no, it's, it's down a lot. No? It's down quite a bit, yeah. but I, who knows what it should be. I think the biggest issue uh, is just creating stability in the price. Because it's it's difficult to um, treat it as a true currency if you can't hold it, you know. And yeah. for instance, most merchants like like uh, Overstock and others, they're not holding the Bitcoin. They're 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 yeah. converting them immediately, so they have no currency risk. Um, I think for it to be a currency, it just has to have a more stable value because it's not much of a currency if you don't want to hold it for an instant because you don't want to take that risk. 
I think that's, yeah, I think that's something that will be. With more, uh, more volume. More volume, more volume. Down, and, yeah. Yes, I think so too. So I think that's key. And then just a simple process. Cause even today, if you want to buy something, uh, on overstock, it's something of a complex process to go get your wallet and go buy your Bitcoin yeah, and then go figure out how to yeah. use it. Uh, and all that will improve. And I think um, the first wave of companies is going to do the hard work to develop the market. And the second wave of companies is going to come on in and steal the market with slick applications. I mean, we have to now kind of circle type thing you know, that come late, but with a lot of money. Yeah, it's still as early, though. It's still as early. It's still yeah, as, yeah. Just as it's later than, <laughs> than before. But, it's all relative. Uh, yes. It's from I mean, my own experience of these things is that, um, you know, the so-called hockey stick. Yeah. You know, on the graph. It's always later than you think it's going to be. Yeah. But it does happen eventually. But in the case of mobile, it was about 10 years later than people thought it would be. Because mm-hmm. all through 2000, all the way till about, till really the iPhone. Yeah. Uh, mobile was always three years off. Yeah. It was really going to hit stride three years from now. And everybody's yeah. presentation said that. And it was never happening. <laughs> but then something changed, right? Which was faster connectivity. Uh, in many countries, all-you-can-eat pricing. Yeah. And then this wonderful, slick, fun device. As you know, BlackBerry was out years prior yeah. with an app ecosystem. And is that something that you ever I used? I didn't realize they had an app ecosystem. They, you could but, yeah. go on your BlackBerry to their app store and find apps and download them and use them exactly like Apple. Except it was not wasn't the same. wasn't yeah. the same UI. wasn't the same experience. Uh, so years after BlackBerry did, Apple essentially did that and changed the game. Yeah, and I think ubiquitous. It would be very interesting to see in what, what timeline that happens. This is extremely hard to estimate. What I is think. your estimate, if I if I could ask? Uh, well, well, what is the milestone we're trying to hit uh, in through uh, of ubiquity, or or how would how would you? I think uh, measure success. number of users no. is really, uh, uh-huh. like number of people who are, uh, number of users, number of transactions, but transactions not so much as in transactions on the blockchain, but you know, actual, cause there, there's a lot of transactions that aren't actually economic transfers of value that are in the blockchain. So I see. I think those two things are maybe the most important metrics mm-hmm. and I, I, find it very hard to estimate. I, I will yeah. take a while. It will take two years until we have a decent volume, I think. Uh, yeah. Or it, yes. Or, or longer. Or, uh, yeah, and, at and least way. two years. Yeah. Right. So is your, uh, is Jumio a kind of American focused or do you have customers everywhere? Uh, we have customers throughout, uh, Europe and Mid East. Well, mostly Europe and the U.S. We're almost 50-50. Uh, between both okay. markets, and uh, we originated as an Austrian company. Our founder, uh, Daniel uh, Matz, is uh, Austrian. So that's okay. we started the company, and we still have a large office in Vienna, where we have our development, and in Linz, and then we opened up our U.S. headquarters in Palo Alto. Okay, and so it's mainly a service for Bitcoin startups now, uh, or of Bitcoin any companies size. of yes. any size who uh, need to do KYC. 
yes, in the most efficient way possible. There's a lot of ways to do KYC, but most of them really suck. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to treat your customer well and move them through the process in a way they've become accustomed to with all these slick apps, then I think we've got really the, the winning solution. But we've been selling it quite a bit already to other verticals, whether yeah. it's financial services or uh, marketplaces, travel, airlines are just jumping yeah. on board now. It's very powerful in mobile apps to uh, uh, check in for your flight now with your ID verification. Okay, cool. So there's so many applications for it. So if, if um, people are listening to this and uh, that's exactly the kind of thing they need, uh, how can they get in touch? Um, well, they should just um, come to jumeo.com and uh, just put their name in and we'll get in touch with them right away. Or they can certainly um, uh, uh, read about us and learn. Uh, we've got a lot of demos and other information on the site. And once they're self-educated, you know, give us a shout and we're happy to, to talk. Cool. Thanks very much. Okay, Brian. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm here with uh, Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase. Um, it's your first time in Amsterdam, no? It is, my first time here. Um, you're going to give a talk at the conference as well? Yes, I am. There's going to be a talk on Saturday morning um, about uh, you know the future of the Bitcoin industry and things like that. So I'll be talking then. Uh, and what do you think about that? Where is Bitcoin going? Well, uh, you know, a lot of it's obviously unwritten, right? I think we're kind of in the web 1.0 phase where we're building the, the core infrastructure companies of Bitcoin. Um, kind of like in the early days of the internet, there was web hosting companies and DNS and uh, email and those kind of basic functions all got put in place. And then we only saw web 2.0 later. So I think at Coinbase, we're really interested in building that the web 1.0 right now. That's our primary focus with our API platform and get the, the fundamental pieces like being able to store Bitcoin securely, exchange it in your local currency, um, deal with some of the compliance aspects and things like that. And then I think we'll see that second generation of Bitcoin companies um, crop up. So we're just starting to see the very beginnings of that. Um, Coinbase actually has a, an app gallery of people who are building different things on top of the API. And there's a lot of really cool stuff there that's uh, people doing things around um, tipping and like smart property and uh, um, creative uh, ways that uh, people are using it. So it, to be honest, I don't know what those ideas are. We, we sometimes come up with them and we put them on the platform um, ourselves. But so you, you build apps yourself as well? That you we do. But what I'm much more excited about is thousands of developers out there who are going to build the ideas on top of that. I think one of those will be uh, the killer app that we didn't even come up with ourselves. So you think there's going to be that one killer app yeah. that's going to lead to sort of a more mainstream adoption? Um, yeah, I mean, aside from currency, which is already a killer app, right? But yeah. I think there will be other ones. Um, it's a lot like, you know, Apple came out with um, iOS, right, as a platform, and they kind of seeded that with their own first uh, main apps, right, like email and contacts and cameras and things like that. Um, but eventually they had an app store where 500,000 apps were all built, and a lot of people don't even use the apps that Apple originally created themselves. They're using other ones created by other people, and there was brand new functionality that nobody expected or really could have thought of at the, at the beginning. So we want to think of it more as um, how do we build the platform where a thousand good ideas can blossom. So I'm also curious, do you think that, you know, we've seen, for example, recently Zappos did this uh, Bitcoin debit card, and I know yeah. a lot of people thought about, you know, Bitcoin kind of functions as a backbone, where you have maybe a dollar on the one side, a dollar on the other side, or a local currency, but just Bitcoin in the middle. Do you think that's going to be more prevalent, or do you think people will actually, you know, huge fans of people will start holding Bitcoins themselves? 
Yeah, well, I think in the early days, it's definitely going to be, uh, you know, the, the former case where people are actually using things like a debit card, and they're swiping that at local merchants who haven't done a full Bitcoin integration yet, but that's a great way for um, consumers and people who have Bitcoin to be able to start going around and using it, even if the merchants are not accepting it yet. So that'll be a great um, growth uh, strategy in the early days. But, you know, in a couple of years, if uh, that merchant is seeing 15, 20% of their volume in Bitcoin, there's no reason why they then wouldn't go do a direct integration. So I, I really see it as um, a way to help the network grow, but it's not the long-term um, potential. And what about Coinbase? So, I mean, you've talked about kind of the infrastructure part of Bitcoin. And which parts of that do you think will be most important for Coinbase in the future? Yeah, I mean, so the, the biggest ones for us... Um, are about building great consumer wallet. That just means people are able to store it securely, send and receive it easily with mobile apps, web apps. The second thing is around um, exchange tools, right? So people need to be able to convert it to their local currency easily and uh, in a compliant way. And uh, the third thing is we just want to build a great developer platform where we expose that functionality, um, not just on our own website, but in an API where people can integrate it uh, in a very white-labeled way into any other product or service that they want. So... Um, that's where we spend our, a lot of our time focusing. And we've seen, for example, BitPay, has, they, they've started expanding in other countries. What, what yeah. are your uh, plans there? Are you going to open offices in other countries, or are you going to stay, stay focused in the U.S.? Yeah, well, um, you know, we, uh, we already are working with some merchants that are in other countries, um, and so we, we do that as well. The, I, I think the focus for us is less about uh, opening other offices remotely at this time and more just about um, how we can get those merchants on the platform. So, yeah. so then I guess you need to have local banking relationships and that kind of stuff, though? Or... Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It, it depends on what payout mechanism they prefer, right? Yeah. So there, there's a number of ways to get to that, that outcome. Um, simplest one is you can just wire funds to an, a foreign bank account, right? Okay. Um, but there's also local payout methods that are that are popular. Cheaper, cheaper so then. yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much, and I uh, hope you enjoyed the conference. Yeah. Thanks, and I uh, enjoyed ch chatting with you. So. Yeah. So I'm here with Rod Garbett. He's from Berlin as well as me. And he's the founder of Bitbond. Can you tell us a bit about what Bitbond is? Yeah, so Bitbond is a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform for Bitcoins, which means that we're a marketplace for loans. You can either borrow Bitcoins or you can lend Bitcoins, and then you can earn interest on these Bitcoins. And we're bringing borrowers and lenders together internationally. And Bitcoin enables us actually to do a worldwide loan market, which was not possible before Bitcoin. So are you guys the first company to do that worldwide? or We have one competitor that was a little bit earlier than us in the market, which is BTC Jam, but we were the second to actually implement this concept. Okay, cool. And uh, how's it going? Do you see a lot of traction? Yeah, at the beginning it was difficult, which is natural for a marketplace model where you need to balance supply and demand. But especially in the last two months, it's picked up pretty good and we're getting... Uh, about one loan per day funded, which is very good for now. Oh, great. Congratulations. Thanks. So, uh, where are a lot of the people borrowing and lending? Can you tell us a bit about the geographical dispersion of that? Sure. It's actually very diverse, I have to say. We have customers from over 100 countries already, and uh, the strongest countries so far are the Anglo-Saxon countries that have Eng English as a first language. So, um, so the UK, the US, uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, those are the strongest. And then there is a very diverse set of different 
countries, also from continental Europe and from Africa. And is that similar for both lending and borrowing, or is there a difference there? Yeah, I would say that it applies to both sides, borrowers and lenders. It's both very diverse. Cool. And you're going to give a talk, or you're going to you're at the panel at this conference, is that right? Exactly, that's right. I'm at a panel on merchant services where we will discuss the future outlook of how merchant services regarding Bitcoin, of course, will look like in the future. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? What's your view on merchant services? Yeah, well, my personal view is that right now, when uh, you have uh, payment service providers, what they basically are, they are an interface to an exchange. So um, they enable merchants to accept Bitcoin, and uh, these merchant service providers actually convert Bitcoins to local currency like dollars or euros or other currencies instantly. So the merchant actually gets paid in their local currency. What my personal belief is how the future will look like is that merchants will want to keep actually Bitcoin and uh, will not want to convert the total sales they make into their local currency. So then you need new services compared to today. And this is mainly an accounting integration. Because currently, when you have uh, a normal business running and you accept payments on your bank account, this bank account integrates with your accounting very easily on the technical side. And this is something that I believe that Bitcoin merchant services will have to offer in the future as well. Yeah, I, I, mean, I totally agree that there's going to be a big need, right? As soon as you start accepting Bitcoin, like what do you do with all the accounting, compliance, etc. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, I say that's going to be offered by uh, payment processes, because I always thought like there will be separate companies that do that. Why do you think that's going to be payment processes that will offer that? And not, for example, accounting software or... Well, I believe, I believe that the, the payment service providers that we have in the Bitcoin world so far, which uh, the largest examples, of course, are BitPay and Coinbase and maybe CoinKite, I think that they will take the opportunity and, and might go into that direction. Although maybe it's not the most natural thing, because currently, like in the standard fiat world, it's companies like SAP and their, um, and their enterprise resource planning software that actually does this. But I'm not sure whether they will be innovative enough to do this for the Bitcoin world. So I believe, I believe that there will be Bitcoin startups, some of them that already exist today, and maybe some of them will just be founded in the future that will provide these services. No, I think that's a really interesting topic and also a really important topic because I think that's probably a really big hurdle now. And maybe it's not so much a hurdle to Bitcoin acceptance because, yeah, you can use BitPay to get your local currency, but it's definitely a huge hurdle when it comes to keeping Bitcoins as a company. I absolutely agree. And uh, that's also the reason from my standpoint why you need um, new services that allow you to integrate Bitcoin deeper in your company, right? Because just... Just accepting it and then actually taking a local currency is not that big of a deal. It, it gets a little more difficult and a little more tricky once you actually want to keep Bitcoin and once you're actually living in a Bitcoin world where you don't convert 100% of the revenues into your local currency. I feel I remember that either BitPay or Coinbase have some sort of QuickBooks integration. I don't know how that works, um, but I remember at one point that... Okay, I, uh, like that does exist. to be honest, I haven't heard of that yet. So, I'll, I'll ask but, them about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. So what are you looking forward to at the conference most? Well, I think this is really a conference where you have a very diverse set of, um, of people who are speaking and who are visiting the conference. And I'm looking forward to meet new people that I've just known by email so far. And I have the chance to actually meet in person and, you know, make, make deeper connections and uh, just meet a lot of people. Cool. 
Well, thanks very much, and I look forward to your panel and hangout this weekend. Thank you very much. So I'm here at the correspondence reception just before the Bitcoin uh, 2014 conference is about to start, and I'm here with the the chairman of the board of the German Bundesverband Bitcoin, which is kind of the German Bitcoin Foundation. Uh, Jeff, how are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Yeah, I'm very excited about the conference. Yeah, pretty excited to be here. Uh, we we got in a little earlier because we finished talking to the Bitcoin Foundation of becoming a affiliate of the Bitcoin Foundation as a German chapter, sort of. Yeah, I was hearing about that, and, and I remember in the beginning when the foundation, uh, they, you know, they wanted us to join, or the German foundation join, everyone was like, no, 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 no. And it seems like now this has come around, and people are more uh, positive towards it. Yeah, um, and I think it is more positive, uh, mainly because we started communicating with each other, which didn't really happen before. Like, every piece of information we got maybe a year ago or half a year ago, was all rumors, and it turned out the Bitcoin Foundation is uh, made a. Is, they're all really great guys. They're enthusiastic about Bitcoin. They are looking out to promote, to protect, and to standardize. And I'm excited that we're actually going to be part of that in Germany as well. So, do you, what do you think that's going to mean for uh, you know, kind of Bitcoin foundations in general, and for Bitcoin if we have uh, a lot more cooperation? A global cooperation. Yeah. Um, well, I think as it looks right now, uh, on a broken down to a national level, regulators are getting more aware of Bitcoin, and it seems that the community has to, on, on some parts at least, work together to create the best possible outcome on a legal stance, on regulatory stance. And so every, every country faces some challenges for the future right now, some more, some less. Um, and having a international organization that kind of combines all the efforts and provides an infrastructure and provides schooling and, and um, orchestrated press. Yeah, that's definitely valuable. That's, yeah, that's totally. totally valuable. So, so what are you most looking forward to at the conference? I'm sorry? What are you most looking forward to at the conference? Are there any talks you want to see or meeting people? Uh, well, I think one of the more interesting talks is probably going to be the talk by Andreas Patterson about Mycelium, a Bitcoin wallet yeah. that also has an integrated trading feature. So it's the pretty local much trader function. Yeah, so it's pretty much Bitcoin wallet for Android combined with local Bitcoins. And I, I'm excited to hear more about that. Um, for one, I'm pretty excited to hear Patrick Byrne talk. He's going to give the keynote speech tomorrow. So just and, and there's a bunch of talks about um, the possible mass adoption of Bitcoin. So that's going to be interesting. Oh, that's too. going to happen this weekend. Yeah, well, possibly, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks very much, Jeff. And, well, thank uh, you. you know, I look forward to hanging out this weekend. So we hope you enjoyed this episode about the Bitcoin 2014 conference. If you liked our coverage, please consider tipping us at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter and tune in next week for more interviews and coverage of Bitcoin 2014.